bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 22, 2016. National election results are now about two weeks old, and the tax credit community is continuing to assess their impact on the future of affordable housing, community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. Now, coincidentally, this week also marks an important anniversary for the low-income housing tax credit. 27 years ago today, the Senate agreed to, by voice vote, to extend the low-income housing tax credit for the first time. The year was 1989, just three years after the low-income housing tax credit was created by the Tax Reform Act of 1986, essentially as a three-year demonstration program that was scheduled to expire at the end of 1989. However, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1989 that was ultimately signed into law by President George H.W. Bush in December extended the low-income housing tax credit one more year to December 31, 1990. Now, the LHCC would be extended again for a year at the end of 1990 and then again for six months at the end of 1991. Then, the local housing tax credit temporarily expired on July 1, 1992, but it was made permanent in August of 1993 by then-President Bill Clinton. Now, turning to podcast news, in our general section today, I'm going to talk about which candidates may be in line to lead Treasury and the Department of Housing and Urban Development in a Trump administration. Then, in our local housing tax credit section, I'll share some updates about HUD's final rule on small area fair market rents. And then I'm also going to share an idea for a renter's tax credit and how such a credit would alleviate or is designed to alleviate rent burdens for low-income households. In new markets tax credit news, of course, I'm going to share details and some insights on the highly anticipated announcement of the CDFI Fund's $7 billion in new market tax credit allocation authority that was made last week. In our store tax credit section, I'll discuss one way the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation is emphasizing the importance of the historic tax credit and low-income housing tax credit as preservation tools. And I'll close out with the renewable energy tax credit news, where I'm going to outline state legislation in Utah that would phase out the state's tax credit for residential and commercial solar installation. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, President-elect Donald Trump has been working on pulling together his cabinet. Now, there are two posts that I'm most interested in, Treasury Secretary and Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The post of Treasury Secretary is up for grabs, but there does appear to be a field of candidates that's narrowing. One option for the Secretary is Trump's campaign finance chairman, Steve Mnuchin. Mnuchin is the former Chief Information Officer at Goldman Sachs. However, there have been some that have been critical of the fact that so many prior Treasury Secretaries have been from Goldman Sachs. There's also Wilbur Ross, chairman of W.L. Ross & Company, and a prominent Trump campaign economic advisor. But it appears that Trump more likely will nominate him for Commerce Secretary. And then another contender for Treasury Secretary is Representative Jeb Hensarling, 
He's a Texas Republican. He also, as you likely know from prior podcasts, is chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Hensarling appears to have the backing of Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch, who will, by the way, chair the confirmation hearing on Treasury nominees. Hatch said that he considers a handful of other candidates worthy of the job, but he called Hensarling a bright and hard-to-beat candidate. Whether or not Hensarling becomes Treasury Secretary, one of the high priorities, or one of the priorities high on his list, will likely be to repeal and replace the Dodd-Frank Act. Hensarling is an outspoken critic of the 2010 financial reform bill, and he's already drafted his replacement financial reform bill. It's called the Choice Act. With a Republican president in the White House, Hensarling has a much better chance of deregulating Wall Street than he had under President Obama, who passed the Dodd-Frank bill back in 2010. Now, also on Hensarling's agenda is housing finance reform, where he would like to wind down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as well as remove government backing from the secondary mortgage market. Hensarling's housing finance reform bill is the Protecting American Taxpayers and Homeowners, or PATH, Act of 2013, not to be confused with the PATH Act that extended a number of tax provisions at the end of last year. Now, turning to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, there are eight candidates that are rumored to be being considered for secretary. There's Pamela Hughes-Patnode, president of the J. Ron Terwilliger Foundation for Housing America's Families. There's former Representative Rick Lazio of New York, and he's a frequent speaker at Novograd conferences. There's Brian Montgomery, the vice chairman of a business advisory firm who was a former FHA commissioner. Ed DeMarco, the former acting director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And then we're also hearing Scott Brown, a former U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, though he's also under consideration, apparently, for head of the Veterans Administration. There's Blaine Lukemeyer. He's a member of the House Financial Services Committee, and he's a subcommittee chairman of housing and insurance. There's also Rob Astorino, a Westchester County executive in New York. And then lastly, but not least, Robert L. Woodson. He's head of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, and he met with President-elect Trump over the weekend. So let me know, who would you like to see take the lead at Treasury and at HUD? Feel free to tweet your responses and tag me. My handle is at Novogratik. Also, I do want to note that Congress is expected to pass another continuing resolution. Current funding expires on December 9th, and Congress is expected to come back and extend that date to March 31st. It looks like Congress will not pass any full bills for any particular department for the full fiscal year. The legislation that will extend the government funding past December 9th to March 31st is unlikely to be a tool or a vehicle for passing tax extenders. So as it looks like for now, tax extenders is unlikely to pass at the end of this year. Now let's move away from election and election-related news and look at affordable housing. HUD released its final rule last week concerning small area fair market rents, or FMRs, in certain metropolitan areas in the administration of the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Now, the purpose of the HUD small area FMRs is to give Housing Choice Voucher tenants a better chance to live in areas of higher opportunity and lower poverty. That's because the subsidy will rise to allow them to afford rents in those small area FMRs. Under the final rule, public housing agencies, or PHAs, 
that operate in designated metropolitan areas are required to use the small area FMRs for their Housing Choice Voucher programs. Previously, the subsidy for the Housing Choice Voucher program was determined by a formula that considered rent prices across an entire metropolitan area. But as you know, rent can vary greatly across an entire metropolitan area, which means the voucher subsidy based on the previous method might be too high for one neighborhood and too low for another. The text of the final rule said that HUD believes small area FMRs are more effective in helping families move to areas of higher opportunity and lower poverty. Now the final rule both retains most of the proposed rules and makes some changes. Among the changes, the final rule sets additional criteria by which small area FMRs will be set. It provides that PHAs have up to three months from the date when new FMRs go into effect to update their payment standards. That's if a change is needed. And it provides that HUD may suspend a small area FMR designation if it determines that adverse rental housing conditions would result. Now, the rule also adds the vacancy rate of an area as a criterion for determining small area FMRs. That means that seven metropolitan statistical areas are exempted from complying with the small area FMR rule due to their vacancy rate. These areas include two areas in New York State, three metro areas in California, and one each in Washington and Virginia. Now, if you have any questions about how this final rule affects you, call my partner Susan Wilson in our Austin, Texas office. You can read the final rule at www.hudresourcecenter.com. In other affordable housing news, a recent policy paper was released that proposes a new tax credit. The tax credit is called the Fair Assistance and Rental Credit, or the FAIR credit. The policy paper was authored by the Turner Center for Housing Innovation. The proposal is intended to alleviate rent burdens by allowing renters to claim a federal tax credit. The FAIR credit proposal presents three options for calculating the credit. There's a rent affordability option, a rent reduction option, and a composite option. The rent affordability option would provide low-income families a credit equal to the difference between 30% of their income and the lesser of the gross rent or the small area fair market rent. This option is estimated to cost $76 billion a year. The rent reduction option would provide a smaller credit to pay 12 to 33% of a family's rent or the small area FMR. Here's an example. A family making 60% of area median income would receive a credit equal to 18% of their annual rent, whereas a family making 30% of area median income would receive a credit equal to approximately 25% of their rent. Now this option is substantially less expensive at a cost of $41 billion a year. And finally, the composite option would augment the rent reduction option with a targeted credit that provides deeper and possibly more frequent assistance to extremely low-income renters. Its cost is approximately $43 billion. Now, one of the arguments in favor of this credit is to help offset the rent burdens faced by so many lower and low-income families. They note, the policy paper does, that rents have ridden faster than incomes, which has helped cause the unprecedented rent burdens. Here's an example. In 2014, nearly half of all renters, that's 21.3 million households, paid more than 30% of their income for housing. As if that's not bad enough, 11.4 million of those households 
were paying more than 50% of their income for housing. If you want to read the policy paper, go to www.taxcredithousing.com and also feel free to tweet at Novogratic your thoughts on the proposal. In community development news, last week, the CDFI fund, after a lot of waiting by a lot of entities for a, quite a while, the CDFI fund announced the recipients of its historic $7 billion in New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority. The New Market's Tax Credit Allocation Round was the combined round for 2015 and 2016, thus making it the largest allocation round of the 13 rounds in the tax credit's history. The Treasury Department had announced in April that it would combine last year's round with this year's after the New Market's Tax Credit was authorized for five years, five more years, that is, as part of last December's PATH Act. Under that five-year extension, the CDFI fund is still scheduled to make allocations of $3.5 billion in 2017, 18, and 19. Now, this year's combined allocation was announced by Treasury Secretary Jack Lew during an appearance at an innovative Washington, D.C. area preschool that was funded with New Markets Tax Credit Equity. 120 organizations received the New Markets Tax Credit Awards, and they're located in 36 states plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And of the 120 community development entities, or CDEs, that received awards, if you average it out, the average is $58.3 million. And that's an increase over the average of $48.9 million per allocation over the history of the program. By the way, in previous rounds, the average allocation actually dropped to $41.4 million. So this year's round's average of $58.3 million is substantially higher than the recent year's averages of $41.4. Now, if you're wondering about the geographic distribution, of the $7 billion allocated, the CDFI fund estimates that more than $4 billion will be invested in major urban areas, about $1.4 billion will be invested in minor urban areas, and more than $1.2 billion will be invested in rural areas. And looking back over the life of the program, the total amount awarded since 2001 is now $50.5 billion. Now historically, awards have generated $8 of private investment for every dollar of federal investment. So that means there's been more than $400 billion, or soon will be, of private investment incentivized by the federal new markets tax credit. Again, demand did outpace supply as it has done continually. In this round, 238 community development entities applied for allocations. Since 120 received awards, that means about half of those that applied did get awards. You can read more about the awards at our website, www.newmarketscredits.com. Also, check out my blog at www.novaco.com blog to read more about this round of allocations and the types of businesses specifically targeted. And if you have questions about your allocation or how to apply for the next round, call my partner Brad Elphick in our Atlanta office. In historic tax credit news, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation officially endorsed the historic tax credit and the long-commencing tax credit in a newly adopted policy statement. The Advisory Council advises the President and Congress on national historic preservation policy. And with a new President and Congress starting in January, the Advisory Council has a critical role of defending the benefits of the historic tax credit. The Advisory Council last week issued their policy statement in order to advance historic preservation principles. The policy statement identifies both the historic tax credit and the long-commencing tax credit as tools that can be used to make historic preservation developments feasible. The Council 
says that recent studies documented how these tax incentive programs contribute to economic development and job production, which makes them primary tools for revitalizing neighborhoods. Research shows that investments in historic rehabilitation have greater positive impact on employment, state and local taxes, and the financial strength of the state than new construction does. The council said that local governments should consider how federal and state historic tax credits and local housing tax credits can be used to fund projects that involve local historic properties. If you want to learn more, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. Turning to renewable energy news, a legislative committee in Utah is recommending that the state phase out its tax credit for residential and commercial solar installation. The House Revenue and Taxation Interim Committee last week advanced a bill that's sponsored by Republican Representative Jeremy Peterson. The bill would cap and then phase out the residential solar credit, which has been in place since 2007. Peterson's bill also calls for a phase-out of the state's 10% commercial solar energy credit. The bill includes a gradual reduction of the credit amount per commercial solar unit, starting at $50,000 and dropping by $10,000 a year until it ends in 2020. We'll continue to monitor the situation in Utah and report back as conditions warrant. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I would, though, like to take a moment to invite everyone to join us at the Novogratic 2016 Tax Credit Housing Finance Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's coming up next week, December 1st and 2nd, and it's a great time to meet with your colleagues and to discuss the impact of election results on the low housing tax credit equity markets, as well as what may lay in store for tax reform and its effect on the low housing tax credit in 2017. You can register at www.novaco.com. I do hope to see you there. And that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.